Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Hey, City Beautiful family. My name is John David Harris. It's such an honor to be here with you today, to be beamed into your homes, on your phones, your iPads, whatever. It's an honor to sit here and read through the Bible and explore some of the mysteries of it with you this morning. Um, We're in the middle of a series called What to Do When Everything is Terrible, and you can't really go into a series like that without exploring the book of Job. So Ryan has asked me to kind of walk us through that book and kind of explore some of the things that are in there. It's a fascinating and ancient tale. It's really plagued and fascinated scholars and readers for thousands of years. Uh, Basically, the summary of the book of Job is it's a good man uh, who's befallen by these terrible tragedies and given unsatisfactory by his friends and faith leaders, but in the end, he encounters God and his wealth and his prosperity is restored. yeah, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating ancient work of scripture, and we're going to dive into it today. Um, this work is what we would call a work of theodicy, which is the idea of a of a work or a, or a thought exercise of vindicating God for the existence of evil. Now, when I say that, I don't want you to think that I'm trying to vindicate God like He needs our vindication necessarily, but we as like sense making creatures like to explore with mental mind games like this idea of the problem of evil or the problem of pain. Uh, It's this notion of why do bad things sometimes happen to good people? Uh, Why do uh, bad things even happen honestly at all? Um, And then there's the relative question of why do then good things happen to bad people? But um, it's a question that has really like plagued you and me and the rest of humanity for a long time. Some, so long, in fact, that some scholars believe that this book, this story, is actually the oldest in the Bible. Um, so, because of that, it shows that people have been plagued by this question. And not only that, but people have started to surmise different solutions to this question. And a lot of people have actually looked to this book, this ancient text, for those solutions. Uh, a lot of people have talked about it. A lot of people have hypothesized about it. And there's, you've probably heard before someone talk about the book of Job and, and give their opinions on what they feel like the solutions for. And I'm going to do the same today. Uh, I'm sure that my solution is incomplete. I'm, as we're we're going to talk about some of the others that are incomplete. Um, but what I really wanted to do is I really wanted to take all the solutions that I had heard before and really pit them against the story itself to see if those solutions hold water against the actual story and the text of Job and the greater text and the greater narrative that we find in the Bible. So we could say that I've looked at those answers and I found them wanting and I believe kind of the author has as well. So before we dive into the scripture, let's pray real fast. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've given us. We thank you for what you take away. We thank you that although we have little understanding in your ways that you have full understanding. And Father, we pray that you will come in this space. You will you will take over this this talk and this sermon and even as we sit at home apart that you will unify us together in our hearts as we grow closer to you. And as we look 
deeper into some of these like darker and cobwebbed parts of the text and, and of our lives that we may actually find you hiding there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to talk about some interesting facts about this book of Job. Um, this book, like I said before, it's possibly one of the oldest stories in the entire Old Testament. Um, it is set in as the first book of wisdom. So in the Old Testament, you have the books of Moses, then you have the books of history, then you have the books of wisdom, and then you have the prophetic books. And this is in the books of wisdom. So if you're trying to categorize it in your mind, this is along the lines of Psalms, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, that kind of literature. Um, and you'll, you'll hear that as we go in to it. Um, there are a lot of secular and contemporary scholars that believe this story was actually written in the 4th or 7th century between those, that's, that's a lot of centuries, <laughs> but between the 4th and 7th century BCE, uh, perhaps while um, the Hebrews were in their Babylonian exile uh, when Jerusalem was destroyed and they were removed out um, as a place uh, and they started writing all these books and exploring their history and where they'd come from. Um, but there is a little potential error in that theory and it's because, like I said, most of those books talk about who we are, where we are, where we come from, what is our importance to the world, who, who are we in relationship to our creator, to Yahweh. Um, and what's interesting is this doesn't have any of those characteristics. Uh, the Hebrews do not find a place. There are no lists of patriarchs. There's no list of lineages in the book of Job. It's just, it doesn't give us a sense of place or time. So it'd be a very odd book to have written during that time of exile. The other thing that's weird about it, it's part of that, but it expands on it a little bit, is this idea that Job actually probably isn't Jewish. So... To write a book while your people are in exile, to give your people a sense of place, a sense of purpose, to write a whole narrative uh, that is embraced by your entire culture, that has been embraced by them for a long time, that continues to be embraced by them now, uh, and have your central character not be Jewish, not be a Hebrew, would be a very odd thing. So there is actually an alternate idea, and this is the one that the rabbinical tradition states, the tradition of the Hebrews and their teachers and their scholars, is that actually this is a story written by Moses. Perhaps it was something he learned while he was in exile out of Egypt from his father-in-law Jethro um, or uh, from the other Canaan scholars in the area, um, but it's definitely an, an oddball in these Old Testament texts because you have a centralized character who's not Jewish but who is favored by God, who is given prosperity and wealth and is looked upon as this mighty person even though they're not part of the Abraham line. Uh, some people have even hypothesized this is kind of in the same lines of those other mysterious characters you see in the Old Testament like Melchizedek who runs into Abraham 
who is another character from uh, Mesopotamian region who follows Yahweh but is not necessarily a part of the Jewish fold. It's really interesting that this person is in there and it's why it's interesting that it's so beloved and it's so old and talked about for so long. Um, The basic structure is uh, it's either a a poor written play or like a well-written poem because we have these long stretches of monologues and poetry and they keep getting interrupted by these little bits of narrative. But for the most part, it's just this long flowing story. The basic uh, story structure is we meet Job at the beginning We witness a wager between God and Satan about Job regarding him. Uh, Job has a really, really bad day. Then Satan goes back to God. There's another, like, double down of this wager. Job has another bad day. Then his friends uh, come to comfort him. There's this like figure who's this like armchair theologian that comes to comfort him. Uh, neither of those things satisfied Job's uh, question and his longing for understanding. Then God shows up. God speaks to Job. Job is finally at the end restored. So that's the basic narrative. But let's go ahead and we're going to read uh, the entire first chapter of Job. So we kind of jump into it and we'll go from there. So chapter 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. This sounds to me like the beginning of a math problem that I would have just skipped. Um, His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. This really is not a bad custom if you were one of his kids. I mean, think about it. You could have just the most craziest party on your birthday, and you didn't have to worry about consequences because you knew dad was going to go make an offering and clean everything up for you. Um, Not a bad gig. Uh, Let's keep going. One day the angels, or uh, in the original translation, uh, the heavenly hosts, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Pause there for a second just to acknowledge this would be a very strange thing um, for Jewish readers to read this knowing that Job was not Jewish. Um, Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? This is where we get the idea of a hedge of protection. It comes from right here. You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has in your, is in your power. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
One day, Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with him. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped you. While he was speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Chapter 1. You get a lot of crazy stuff going on there. Um, But... Let's talk about the beginning. So Aaron Sorkin, the famed storyteller and and playwright and uh, filmmaker, um, has said that he would like to set every single story throughout all time as a courtroom drama. Because it's plain. It's clear. It's easy to know who is the good guy, who is the bad guy, who is the defendant, who is the prosecutor. You have the law sitting there in the middle, ruling over the, the case. You have testimonies. You can do flashbacks real easily. That's why you'll notice a lot of his stories are told in a courtroom. Um, But we have the same notion here. This idea of a heavenly court where God resides and all the hosts of heaven come. They can make their petitions before God. And then you're introduced to this other character, Satan. Now what's interesting about this is that in the Hebrew... Some of you probably already know this. It's actually pronounced like the Satan. It is a title. It is the idea that he is a prosecuting attorney. This prosecution type role. And his job is actually to roam around the earth looking for wrongdoing. So, <clears throat> I don't... There's a lot of modern scholars who like to look at this and like shove their like noses in the air and be like, well, you see here, this is evolution. This shows the evolution of this devil type character from this innocent prosecutor character, much like a, like a Hades type character in Greek mythology, where it was just his role to be over the underworld, into the more like New Testament evil um, dragon type character that, that we imagine when you think of like the devil. And they point out that here in the book of Job, he's just a prosecutor. And so, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't think so negatively of him. But, like, I don't think he should get off the hook that easy. Because, first of all, our prosecutors that we have here on earth don't go roaming around killing people's families and destroying their livelihoods and their livestock just so that they have someone to persecute. Um... That doesn't make someone a good guy, even if it's their job. Like, (laughs) that's a ridiculous excuse. Uh, So I don't think Satan should get off the hook here. Uh, The other thing I want to talk about is, like, this actual day of catastrophe. uh, And talk, really address the fact that 
even though the circumstances here are tragic and they're terrible and the details are brutal, it almost kind of plays off like this weird Monty Python sketch where you have one guy coming in out of breath telling him, I was just working the fields and these guys came out and they killed all your ox and before he could even finish his story, another guy comes out of the field and was like, yeah, I was just hanging out with your sheep and then like fire started coming from the sky and like burned them all up and then a third guy comes out and was like, yeah, so your camels, they all got killed. At that point, I kind of think the second guy was like, whoa, whoa, did none of you guys hear like fire was coming from the sky? You two guys got like robbers and thieves and stuff. I had fire falling from the sky. Then the fourth guy comes in before any of them can even finish and he's the one who delivers the worst news of all, which is all of Job's sons and daughters were killed. You know, there's some fascinating things about the descriptions and these things. You get this notion of a whirlwind coming out of the desert and striking at the same time all four corners of the house where Job's children were, which just, I think, goes to symbolize the fact that Job is being surrounded by all four sides by torment and trouble. And even in the midst of all that, It says that Job does not sin because he did not accuse the Lord of wrongdoing. So this is going to bring us to our first potential solution to the problem of pain. That people point to the book of Job to say, here's the solution. This is why pain exists in the world. And it's called the satanic solution. It's this idea that it's the devil The devil made us do it. The devil was in the garden. The devil tempted Eve. The devil does this. The devil possessed that boy. The devil possessed that girl. The demons are are attacking us at any given moment. And now what I do believe fully that the supernatural and the natural do affect one another. I believe that there is a supernatural realm. I believe that there's supernatural uh, effects that happen in that realm, affect us physically, and vice versa. Just in the same way that there, that there seems to have been placed this difference between like mental health and physical health, which I don't believe should be there. They are so inter, integrally entwined with one another that it should be the same thing. I feel the same way about the natural and supernatural. However, there's a problem with answering the problem of pain with just the devil. Here's a few problems. First of all, there's a lot of pain and suffering going on in the world. And if we take the account of the book of Job to be literal, we're, we've basically created a scenario where all day, every day, Satan is just sitting there in God's throne room with a laundry list of things that he's wanting to do. And God's going, yes, 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 no, yes, yes, no, no, yes. And I just don't think that that's what's going on. I don't think that God is going to give credence to the devil or even the Satan in this kind of way. There's much more interesting things that he has to do. Um, Also, uh, the problem is that this makes, this idea makes Satan actually the active force in the universe. And the biblical narrative is that Satan is not the active force in the universe. God is the active force in the universe. He is the one that's creating. He is the one that is proactive. He's not being reactive. He's being proactive to the things that are going on in the world. So the satanic solution isn't really a solution at all. Because as Job points out, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The last problem with this satanic solution of just blaming everything on the devil or just evil is that... 
it negates the understanding of responsibility. Job understood the responsibility that God had. Job understood that if he was given something by God, then he was, and it was taken away, it was God that was doing the taken away. God understands the responsibility. He was the one that allowed the Satan in this story to go ahead and stretch out his hand against Job. So you can't just blame it on the devil. We can't just blame every bad thing on the enemy or the demons or whatever. The satanic solution holds no water. And it's interesting to me that people point to the book of Job to be like, look, see, in the very beginning, Satan's up there asking God for permission and then Satan's going down and doing the work. So obviously the answer of evil is Satan when Job, the text itself, actually refutes that. Let's read chapter 2. It's a little shorter. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth and going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. That's important to remember, without any reason. Satan's reply, skin for skin, Satan replies, a man will give you all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Basically, you can do anything you want to him, you just can't kill him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. So he's still in mourning because he's still in the ashes and he's developing these sores all over his body. A lot of people think that this is similar to like leprosy or something because they would scrape the sores off their bodies. His wife said to him, are you, maintain, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Just get it over with. The idea here is that just if you curse God, he'll send a lightning bolt and destroy you and this whole thing will be done with. So just, just get on with it. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And all this Job did not sin in what he said. When Job's three friends... Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep out loud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So, the next solution that I want to talk about real fast uh, is what I call the charismatic solution. It's this idea, we know the story of Job, we know where he's at, we know, because I told you before, that he's going to end up restored and happy and good. And the solution is, it's all right because it's all right in the end. Like, the ends 
The joyous ends justify the means. The fact that we have the promise of heaven tomorrow means that we don't even have to worry about all the sin and nastiness of the world today. We can just put our blinders on. We can just have our holy huddles. And we can just dance in the spirit and ignore the pain and the tragedy and the sorrow that's going on around us because, you know what? Heaven's our answer. It doesn't matter if we pray for somebody and they aren't healed because we know that they'll be healed in the spirit. And it's just this kind of cheap, weak solution to the problem of pain. I was raised in this tradition and I had a youth pastor who would say like, it doesn't matter because one day we're going to be like eating heavenly pizza and drinking holy Mountain Dew and it's going to be great because we'll be in heaven. And so like, it's, it doesn't matter that your parents are divorced or that like your life stinks or that, you know, your sibling died or whatever because we're going to be in heaven. We're going to be partying. But if you think that was the answer to all this, then you would think Jesus would know that answer. In John chapter 11, we have this brief story where Jesus hears of his friend Lazarus being sick. And Jesus tells his disciples, we'll go see Lazarus, but give me a couple days. And eventually, they were, started making their way to Lazarus' house. By the time they reached Lazarus, Lazarus had died. And Jesus was still pretty chill, pretty confident about it. He's like, now he's sleeping. We're going to go wake him up. Jesus had this whole plan. He had this whole thing under, under control. But then in verse 35, when Jesus finally sees his friend lying there dead, we get the shortest but potentially most powerful book in the entire Bible. And it's this. Jesus wept. Jesus understood. He had his plan. He knew what was going on. He knew what was going to go on. And yet still he wept. The circumstances didn't change the feelings that he had. The fact that he knew that Lazarus was going to be raised from the dead just moments later didn't change the fact that pain still existed. That heartache was still there. So the charismatic solution is nothing more than a set of blinders to cover ourselves from the world. And if we're supposed to be reflective like Jesus, we see that Jesus feels more for the people in pain and suffering, not less. So I think the charismatic solution is not a good solution. The next like 30 something chapters are these three friends that show up and they start to, they come, they find Job in this dark place. He's saying things like, may the day of my birth perish, uh, perish. and like sighing has become my daily food. Groans come out of me like water. It's these like dashboard confessionals level of like lamenting. It's just the, the most emoist sections of the Bible you can ever have. And what they do is they try to make sense of the wrongdoing. And they sit with him first for a while, but then they start to speak to him and they start telling him, Job, you know, bad things don't just happen to good people. The world has to make sense. The world has to be right. So the only way that this could have happened to you was because you sinned. We know because of the previous chapters that God has said that he hadn't sinned. We also know that God says that he's uprighteous and perfect and blameless. And this was not caused by sin. But his three friends keep arguing with him. For 30 chapters, they argue with him back and forth about it. We're not going to read those 30 chapters, but that's what happens. They argue back and forth. And this is where it comes in another potential solution. 
And this is what I've coined the Reformed Solution. See, the idea is that God is a God of justice and order. Just God hates chaos. God can't exist where there's chaos. So therefore, his ways, even though they're higher than ours, must make sense. They just might not make sense to us. So I've seen people point to Job and say, well, pain is caused because the wages of sin is death, right? So pain and suffering must be caused by sin somehow. Maybe it's your sin. Maybe it's the sin of your father. Maybe it's the sin of your, your father-in-law. Or maybe it's the sin of the fallen world. So if neither of those things, it's just we lived in a screwed up world. So sin's bound to happen. They keep making sin the root of all this evil. And that doesn't necessarily, I mean, there's, there's parts in scripture that would agree with this. Um, but the only problem is we know that's not the case in Job. We know that this solution of focusing the entirety of why do bad things happen to good people solely on the fallen nature of our world is not the answer because in Job, sin had nothing to do with it. Job's sin didn't have anything to do with it. His father's sin didn't have anything to do with it. The fallen nature of the world had nothing to do with any of the troubles that Job had. So we can't just blame it away on sin and be like, well, you're having a bad day. You probably sinned. Or, you know, you're having this problem over here. It's probably because your dad's an alcoholic. Or, you know, well, you know, kids die from cancer because, this, you know, Eve ate the apple and just we're all screwed now. Again, it's almost like this weird educated set of the same blinders that the charismatics put on when they ignore the troubles of, the, of today and only focus on the promise of tomorrow. It's a worldview that's incomplete at best, but it can be actually dangerous. Because what happens if we start to apply causality to blessing and punishment, we start to get these ideas of manifest destiny these ideas that the strong must be blessed and therefore the weak must be the ones that are wicked. And it leads us to imagine things like the blood of the Crusades or the conquest of the Americans, the enslavements of Africa, the Holocaust. All these things are just things that are just like pawns and pieces on a chessboard that are being moved around and back and forth. And we could simply look at our country and say, man, our country must be blessed. We must be in God's favor because we are wealthy and powerful. We ignore the fact that we stole our land. We ignore the fact that we built our place on the backs of slaves. It's because we're blessed by God. God bless America. We're so good. God loves us more than any other nation because we have all this wealth and power. Maybe it has something a little to do with the fact that we seem to love war and our military-industrial complex. I don't know. Just throwing it out there. But then something happens. Something happens after his friends speak and Job argues with him. Even after the theologian comes and gives basically the same argument in a fancier way. And Job still holds to the fact that I, had, I know I haven't sinned. I know I am right with God. I've searched my soul and I know that I'm right. Another whirlwind comes. This isn't the destructive whirlwind from before that blew down the house. This is a second whirlwind. And in that second whirlwind, God speaks out of it. What God says is this beautiful poetic response. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. 
Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? Where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You've lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of snow or seen the storehouses of hail, which I reserve for times of trouble or days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed? Or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm? To water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost in the heavens? When the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen, can, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of heaven? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? It goes on like this for four chapters. God just basically lays into them. Where were you? Where were you when this happened? I was there. Do you know where these things are? I do. Do you know what's going on tomorrow? I do. Do you know what fully went on yesterday? I do. Are you there? I was. It's as if God is saying, you, you want truth? You want, you want an explanation? I don't, I don't know if, if you deserve one. I don't, I don't really know if you can handle one. See, God peels away the great Gnostic lie that snuck its way into Christianity. And that's the lie that if I just understood a little bit more, I would find peace. If I just understood the why it happened, if God would just explain to me why he allows childhood cancer to exist, that would be enough. If he would explain it to me and it made sense to me and I could justify it in my mind, if he made himself right to me, then I would bend my prideful knee and be, okay, God, thank you for explaining it to me. You've explained it to me. Thank you. I'll now serve you. It's a lie. This idea that by simply understanding something more, we'll be more content with it. Are you kidding me? The more that I understand things, the less I seem to be content with things. 
if I just made a little more sense to me, then maybe I could bow down to you. See, people go to the book of Job for a solution to the problem of evil, but it doesn't seem that the book of Job really (laughs) wants to give us an answer. But just because we don't get a full answer doesn't mean that we need to go home empty-handed from this scripture. There's, there's a tradition in the Hebrew, and it's their own solution. And they look at the book of Job, which they've been doing for thousands of years, and they don't necessarily find an answer to their question. But they find something else. You see... Whether or not this was written in the Babylonian exile, whether it was written in Moses' first exile into Egypt, or when the entire people of Israel had left Egypt and were in their 40 years of wandering, you have a group of people who are trying to find themselves. A group of foreigners in a land that's not their own, and they're lonely. And they're looking for their place. And in the book of Job... We're shown the practice. It's the first recording of the practice of what the Jews call Shiva. And it's a seven-day ritual of mourning. And when somebody passes away, when something old has gone, the people gather around each other for seven days, mostly filled with silence, a few other rituals, but it's about being present in the suffering with the people that you care about. The act of Shiva accepts the lack of understanding but replaces it with presence. You don't talk. You don't try to give your explanation. You don't try to give the whole, well, that person was just too good. God, God couldn't last in heaven one more minute without, without them being here with him. You don't try to provide purpose to the pain. You just are present with the people. When God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind, he's asking about presence. It's always about presence. Where were you? Do you know where? Have you been? It's as if God was saying, I was there. And now I'm here. He's making his presence, his his right now presence, known to Job. And telling him, I've been to all those other places, and now I am here with you. God does not fulfill our arrogant, Gnostic desire for understanding, but he promises to fulfill our need for presence. Because the reality is is that you and I need the presence of him and of others more than we need understanding. In the late 1870s, there was a man named Horatio Spafford. He was a, success, he was a successful lawyer whose life um, started to resemble Job when his four-year-old son died, tragically. And then shortly afterwards, the great Chicago fire came through and consumed an area of town that he had invested all of his fortune into. He and his family were supposed to be traveling to Europe shortly thereafter, but... Um, He sent his wife and four daughters ahead because he needed to stay to finish up work and some business affairs due to the fire. And on the crossing of the ship 
that had his wife and four daughters on, they struck another ship and the ship rapidly sank and all four of his daughters perished. And his wife was able to send him back a telegram. Only I was, only I survived. Absolutely devastating. Totally distraught. In the span of only a month or so, you have a man who lost his only son, lost all of his wealth and possessions, and then rapidly after lost his four beautiful daughters. He decided to sail to Europe to comfort his wife. And as his ship was passing over the area where the accident happened, someone came and and told him, we're passing the spot where the ship went down, where you're where your daughters were resigned to the deep. And it's with tears in his eyes, I can't even imagine the pain and suffering. He wrote down these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when the sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know, it is well it is well with my soul. We're not promised answers, but we do have a loving and caring Savior who weeps with us and somehow mends our broken hearts and brings peace where there is none. Let us worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.